0: morning again <clears throat> can i ask you to turn in your bibles please and we're going to be looking at um at nehemiah chapter 5 and chapter 6 don't worry you're not going to be here till tuesday um let's just have a look i'm going to read um bits of it as we go along and uh and explore it together so page 489 on the church bibles Um, So we're starting at chapter 5, verses 1 to 13. Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their Jewish brothers. Some were saying, we and our sons and daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. Others were saying, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our homes to get grain during the famine. Still others were saying, we've had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. Although we're of the same flesh and blood as our countrymen, and though our sons are as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. When I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. I pondered them in my mind and then accused the nobles and officials. I told them, you are exacting usury from your own countrymen so i called together a large meeting to deal with them and i said as far as possible we have bought back our jewish brothers who were sold to the gentiles now you are selling your brothers only to only for them to be sold back to us they kept quiet because they could find nothing to say so i continued what you're doing is not right shouldn't you walk in the fear of our god to avoid the reproach of our gentile enemies I and my brothers and my men are also lending the people money and grain, but let the exacting of usury stop. Give back to them immediately their fields, vineyards, olive groves, and houses, and also the usury you are charging them, the hundredth part of the money, grain, new wine, and oil. We will give it back, they said, and we will not demand anything more from them. We will do as you say. Then I summoned the priests and made the nobles and officials take an oath To do what they had promised. I also shook out the folds of my robe and said, In this way, may God shake out of his house and possessions every man who does not keep this promise. So may such a man be shaken out and emptied. At this, the whole assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord, and the people did as they had promised. Amen. We'll look at some more of that story as we go along. Chapter five and chapter six. Now, does anyone recognize these characters? So there's, first of all, there's Dracula, doing the very over-the-top acting, ho, ho! Who's the other one? A deacon? <laughs> I'll not say who said that, Ella Smith. Okay, who's the other one? It's not, de- it's the hooded claw from Penelope Pitstop. Oh, I'm so disappointed in you. But you know, these are the villains, aren't they? They're the sort of people that when they enter the room from somewhere, there's music that goes dun dun dun. Isn't there? It's kind of a big clue to people who are thick that these are bad guys. <laughs> the thing is, bad guys are not always obvious. The villain is not always obvious. Sometimes opposition wears a friendly face. Sometimes opposition wears a friendly face. Last week, Lisa looked at external opposition to Nehemiah and the project that God had given him. And it was fairly obvious the bad guys were out there and they wanted to kind of cause havoc. But this week we're looking at this next thing, which is internal opposition, internal conflict. It's one of those... Oxymorons, you know the words that don't really go together? The key one is civil war. <laughs> it's like, you know, you shake hands with one hand and you punch with the other. That's like civil war. It doesn't really make sense. But those internal conflicts are the, sometimes the most damaging. They're sometimes the most damaging. Internal opposition. Conflict can be most damaging. To be honest, it's probably what has caused the most problems in church history throughout its entirety has been internal conflict. Because if you are within having internal conflict, you are then externally ineffectual. It is one of the enemy's greatest tactics. And if you want to know what the enemy's tactics are, you just read the screw Tape Letters by C.S. Lewis. And if you've not read them, read them. They're very funny and they're quite uncomfortable reading sometimes. And they're also quite pertinent in these days as well. But if there's internal conflict in the body of Christ, we are externally ineffective because we're too busy trying to sort out ourselves. Sometimes opposition wears a friendly face. That face in this place could be mine. It could be Lisa's. It could be yours. Opposition wears a friendly face. No, this is not about disagreement. This is not about having an argument over something. Actually, remarkably, that's a healthy kind of way of dealing with conflict. We've done that before as a church. We've looked at it about how to disagree well. It's not about that. It's also not about describing the goodies and the baddies. Like whenever we are in an argument, we think, I'm in the right, the other person's wrong. I'm good, they're bad. We're a bit kind of black and white like that. We think of a high priest and the Pharisees in Jesus' day. Do we think that they were essentially the pantomime villains? They, they believed they were doing what was right. For them, Jesus was the baddie. They were the goody. Sometimes, opposition wears a friendly face. But what, in, what happens in Nehemiah, chapter five and chapter six? What it shows is this fact that sometimes we can all be tools of opposition even without realizing it. And if we're not aware of that fact, we're even more dangerous. We can sometimes be the tools of opposition. So what we're going to look at in chapter 5 and chapter 6 in this brief time together are a couple of things. First of all, how can we be used, according to some examples in Nehemiah chapter 5 and 6, and how can we prevent or respond to the threat of being used by the enemy to be internal opposition? So we looked at chapter 5, 1 to 13, just there. We'll look at a couple of other passages in just a few moments. But the first one, chapter 5, 1 to 13, is all about disunity. Initially, it seems to be about money, but essentially it's about disunity. Halfway through the mission, halfway through the wall building, we're halfway there. It's a quite a dangerous old time of it. They've faced good progress, but they've also faced off enemies that have kind of driven them together. You know, a common enemy often does that. They've succeeded in in getting halfway there. But what was actually happening? What was grumbling under the surface? Well, we read about it. What was happening is there was a lack of food. There had been a famine, but there was a lack of food. People couldn't afford to buy food. There were so many helpers um, around And so people had to mortgage their land that they would grow food on if they could. They had to mortgage that as collateral to to raise money, to raise funds in order to buy food. But even more than that, same thing, that old phrase, there's nothing, no things are sure in life apart from death and taxes. They had to pay the king's tax. But they couldn't afford it. So they had to get money to pay the tax. And because they couldn't afford to do that, they were actually selling their children into servitude, into slavery. Now, that sounds initially kind of really harsh, but think about it. One, it raises money to, sit, to feed the rest of the family, and two, that child is probably going to have a more, more of a chance to get fed and watered and, and a shelter over their head as a slave than in their household. So there's not a great deal of choice in the matter. So essentially, to, uh, to use a modern phrase... The rich were getting richer, and the poor were getting poorer. You've heard that of late, haven't you, on the news? The rich getting richer, the poor getting poorer. It's not just the poor. This is the ordinary. This is is people who had land. These are landowners, middle class, professional people who couldn't afford to live. And so they had to mortgage what they would normally use to get money, so they were really losing out always. When Nehemiah hears this, he is, talk about understatement, very angry. It ate away at what he was hoping to build. He wasn't just hoping to build a wall. He was hoping to build a people with identity and purpose. And this was eating away at it. Nobles and officials, notice it may have been some of the nobles from Tokoa. if you were here a couple of weeks ago, when everyone else was mucking in to build the wall, the nobles of Tokoa would not put their shoulder to the work, but yet they would still take the money from the people. What they were doing was exploiting. I love this cartoon, it's quite uncomfortable. I call it opportunity, not exploitation. And that's the capitalist agenda we've got. This is not meant to be political, but it's about money over people, isn't it? This is not exploitation. It's just saying, a, a good opportunity to make, to make money. But that wasn't the key thing. It wasn't just about exploitation. The problem with all of this was about the commodifying and devaluing of a person. That a person is valuable as long as they're useful. They're valuable. They have a monetary offering. Their fellow Jews, their family were benefiting themselves and we see this today within the workplace, don't we? How, how many of us at times have just felt like a number? Like a cog in a big wheel. And I'm unknown. I'm just part of a system. And that's what I, I think the enemy wants us to think about ourselves. Sometimes, maybe even in church, we, we are used. Maybe intentionally, maybe unintentionally. And devalued and commodified. How useful are we as opposed to who we are? This in all its different ways, is an insult to God. He's their creator. So what does Nehemiah do? Nehemiah doesn't bury it. He doesn't sweep it under the carpet. He faces it straight on. He's not afraid to face it straight on. He doesn't bury it or cover it up. He challenges the nobles and officials. Notice he does that privately. This is not to sweep it under the carpet, but he gives them a bit of dignity and respect. Can you guys sort it out privately yourselves? before I embarrass you, essentially. What you're doing isn't right. And then to make sure that everybody knows what happens, he calls a big assembly of people. And he says categorically to these people, what you are doing is not right. I'm a big fan of uh, Justin Welby. I-, I like the fact that he was um, considered the safe choice as a Archbishop of Canterbury Whenever they had all the different candidates. And they thought he was a bit of a wet fish, an ex-businessman. He won't make much of a fuss. And then he got a bit annoyed at Wonga charging 4,000% on payday loans. And he said, I'm going to put you out of business. I'm not going to legislate you out of business. I'm going to put you out of business because what you're doing is exploiting, commodifying people, people who can't afford to live, you are taking more from them and I'm going to put you out of business. He makes the issue public. When our first service here at Skipton Baptist Church, many years ago, Helen and I were sat approximately over in that area over there on the pews and uh, Rob was up here and he was doing notices and he did all the notices and then at the end he said, I've got one more notice to make. And he said, "Um, I'm sorry to say someone in this congregation has written an anonymous letter to someone else, and it is full of poison. Let me tell you, this does not happen in this church. I turned to Helen and went, I like that. This doesn't happen. Publicly saying, you may have meant this to be hidden, but I'm not, I'm going to name it and shame it. This does not happen in this place. And I was impressed at that. That's what Nehemiah is doing. In the large meeting, he gets the people who are, who are fleecing the others to face these other human beings who they are fleecing. And he's saying, look at them in the eye. He humanizes the problem. And the thing is, there wasn't a problem with actually lending money. We often think maybe the Old Testament was saying, thou shalt not lend. Actually, lending was okay. What was not allowed was lending with usury. Because, let's face it, we're not going to live in a world where everybody's got the same amount of money and the same opportunities and the same debts that we live in a fallen world. That's the reality of it. It hasn't worked over centuries, even when it was a political agenda. It still doesn't work because the selfish propensity of humanity tries to acquire more. So the Old Testament makes allowance for that. There's always going to be the haves and the have-nots. So how do you handle that? Like this. Lending is a lifeline, Nehemiah, notice he says, me and my brothers and my company, we've been lending money and grain to people, but this usury must stop. Lending was not meant to be exploitative. It was meant to be, I have something, you don't, let me help you, and then let you, to give you dignity, it's not a handout, you can pay me back when you can, and there's provision if you don't, because after seven years, it's called jubilee, and we wipe the the, the debts clear, Free, slaves are freed, land is returned, it is the year of Jubilee, we have a fresh start. And the dignity of the individual, both sides of the agreement, is kept. And so Nehemiah says to the people, give back what you've taken. This is not a kind of socialist manifesto, power to the people and all that stuff. He's saying, give back what you shouldn't have taken. Give it back to them because they need that in order to feed their families, to raise their taxes, to pay, and you've taken that right away from them unfairly. Give back what you've wrongly acquired. And the amazing thing is, they all go, "Uh, yeah, okay. And Nehemiah goes, not that easily. So he calls the priests over, and he says, okay, swear an oath. In other words, before everybody, write a contract and say you're going to do it. And they do. It's quite amazing. It says that. And they agreed. And everyone did as they promised. That's remarkable. This is someone being challenged to give up their money making scheme and they agree. Nehemiah describes a little bit later on what else he does. He also doesn't take what's rightfully his as the governor, which would have been taking even more stuff from the people. And he also, from his own pocket, pays. um, You you read a little bit later on that he pays for a daily feast for 150 officials and loads of other people. And if you count out the amount of food that is produced every day in this banquet, he probably feeds about 600 to 800 people a day out of his own pocket. Because... The response to this is about, sorry, is responsibility. It's not about exploitation, it's about responsibility. And Nehemiah is setting the example of responsibility, responsibility for each other. If you are a person who's been, who's been blessed, you have the responsibility to bless others. If you are blessed, you are blessed in order to bless, not to benefit. And that's what he was doing, he was setting the example Bless others with what you've got. And if you've been given, bless by giving back again. It's for lenders and lendees. It's about responsibility as opposed to rights. Having that responsibility for other people and to pay back. And it keeps your integrity as well. So that's the first thing. It avoids disunity by the fact that they help and respect one another. This next one is about distraction. I'm going to read that together in Nehemiah chapter 6, 1-9. to And it says this, When word came to Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem, the Arab, and the rest of the enemies that I'd rebuilt the wall and not a gap was left in it, though up to that time I'd not set the doors in the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent me this message. Come and let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. But they were scheming to harm me, so I sent messengers to them with this reply. I am carrying on a great project and I cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? Four times they sent me the same message, and each time I gave them the same answer. Then the fifth time, Sambalat sent his assistant to me with the same message, and in his hand was an unsealed letter in which was written, It's reported among the nations, and Geshem says it's true, that you and the Jews are plotting to revolt, and therefore you are building the wall. Moreover, according to these reports, you're about to become their king and have even appointed prophets to make this proclamation about you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. Now this report will get back to the king. So come, let us confer together. I sent them this reply. This is brilliant. Nothing like what you are saying is happening. You are just making it up out of your head. (laughs) I think Nehemiah had a Northern Irish accent at that point. They were all trying to frighten us, thinking their hands would get too weak for the work and it will not be completed. But I prayed, and I strengthened my hands. Excuse me. This is a precarious time for Nehemiah and the project. It's almost there. You know, you can see the the, the final stretch, and that's sometimes the most dangerous time. We're nearly there. Oh, we, can, we can slacken off a little bit. We're nearly there. And then he gets an invitation from Sanballat and Geshem. Let's meet up at Oh No, which ironically as I think, what Nehemiah's response was. Oh no! He doesn't just get one invite, he gets four invites. He knew it was a scheme A plot to take him away from the work. Let's bury the hatchet. You know, we've had some hard times. Let's get together. Let's have a bit of a do. Let's just sort it out, shall we? That's a good idea, isn't it? Oh, no. It sounds good, but it's not right. Four times they invite him. Four times he says a resolute no. And the fifth time he gets the same invite, but alongside it is an unsealed letter. Now, a letter in those days would have been done like this. It would have written on a parchment. It would have been rolled up. It would have been tied with string or rope. It would have been given a a wax seal to make sure it wasn't tampered with. It would be put into a silk bag. It would have been tied. And then a messenger would take from the sender to the recipient, and that was it. The fact that this person is being sent by Sambalat, and he's just going with an open letter, is a sign of utmost disrespect to Nehemiah. That's the first thing. The second thing is that a scroll that should have been tied up and secret, private, could be read by anyone along the way. And what does it say? Well, it says, I've heard it said, and I've got some evidence about it as well, that there's a plot to make you the king in case you didn't know. Just to let you know. So i tell you what, let's meet up and let's sort it out, shall we? That's a good idea, isn't it? And this feeds into the fears and the anxieties of the king, Artaxerxes. Um, Historically, a number of years before this, he had a really close advisor who he sent to govern Egypt. And this advisor, for a number of different reasons, ended up leading a revolt against Artaxerxes. So these words are really poignant to him, to the king. He'd be anxious that this isn't going to happen with Nehemiah again. So Sambalat's pressing the right buttons, saying the right things to get Nehemiah in trouble. This message is unsealed and therefore widely read. Word about this would get out, would get back to the king. And this attack is all based around one thing. Gossip. Gossip. You may not admit it, but we like a bit of juicy gossip, don't we? We like it. You know, you probably shouldn't, but you can't help yourself. That feeling that you're in the the know, you've got a bit of information that someone else doesn't, and you're passing it on to someone else. It must be really important because you know this about that person. It makes you feel good because it's about someone else, and you're superior clearly than what's happening in their lives. It's about a secret shared, being in the in crowd. Gossip and rumor mongering is one of the deadliest poisons in the church. It is one of the deadliest weapons the enemy uses. And one of the reasons is because we giggle at it. <laughs> A bit of gossip. Because fellas turn around to women and go, that's, yeah, that's what the women do. Nonsense. Nonsense. I will guarantee every single one of us at some point has been involved in rumor mongering in this church. I know I have. I'm pretty certain you have as well. Or in your wider area. I'm pretty certain that that's happened. And this has destroyed many fellowships, many relationships. And if you ever wonder, if you're thinking, I don't gossip, at some point everyone has played our point. If you think it's not you, have you ever heard or used the following? Apparently, <laughs> someone told me, here's one that we get people are saying. I'm serious. That can be really hurtful. And I'll tell you what the attitude we're trying to take about that is. If you come to us and say, people are saying, we want to know who the people are. Because if they've not got the guts to come and say what is on their mind, you are gossip mongering. And it's not worth listening to. So divulge yourself of the idea that you're some kind of champion speaking on behalf of the people. You are not. You're a gossiper. Clear? People are saying. But I can't say who. I was told, and I think you should know, I don't know if it's true, but have you heard about so-and-so? my friends, I'm deadly serious here. Be really careful. Be really careful. Because we giggle at this too much. Gossip and rumor mongering is all, it's not about information. It's all about power. It's all about influence. It's all about points scoring. And it is fueled by insecurity, by jealousy, by malice, judgmentalism, our self-righteousness, by anger, by grievance, and by pride, are any of those Christian characteristics that we're meant to be emulating. But those are the fuel for gossip and rumor-mongering. So let's see, how does Nehemiah respond to this? We've already said, it's really great, first thing he goes. He responds with the truth. I've just got to read it again, because I love it. Nothing like what you are saying Is happening. You're just making it up in your head. It's poetic for saying you're lying. And that's it. Doesn't say anything else. There's non-engagement with the argument. How irritating is it whenever you're really annoyed with someone and you get angry with them and they won't engage? They won't fight back. It's really irritating, isn't it? This is the best thing he could do to sandbal You're talking nonsense and then walk away again. Not engage. He doesn't retaliate. He doesn't write a letter back saying, oh, but what about this about you? Or he doesn't spread rumors about this guy who's really nasty. He doesn't do it. He doesn't retaliate. He doesn't try and justify himself. He doesn't try and do a PR campaign on himself to make sure that it's whatever is wrong is made right. He trusts God about his own reputation. Because God has called him to a mission. He hasn't called him to look after his name. The Psalms are full of this, where David and the other writers are saying, God, will you look after my name because I'm looking after yours. I'm trying to follow you. Will you guard my reputation and my name and my integrity because I'm trying my best to follow you. He trusted God for his reputation. He got on with the work. But he also trusted the legacy of his integrity. He had lived a life of integrity. And that's why he was so high up With the king of the Persian Empire, the superpower of the day, why he was on his chief council, why he was one of his security people, because he had a life of integrity. And so he was trusting that Artaxerxes might hear this and go, that's not Nehemiah, that's nonsense. He did not engage. So, what's our response to be? Okay, simple don't gossip. Can we say it any clearer than that? Don't gossip. Deal in truth. So, the apparently, and I don't know if it's true, but as out the window. Deal in truth. Speak well of others. If there's one surefire way to make sure you're not gossiping, is make sure that you're speaking well of another person. And if you really have to gossip, if you really must, if there's something inside you that just means you have to gossip, will you gossip good? That doesn't mean really good gossip. It means, it means will you gossip what is good about people? Will you say, do you know what? That person was brilliant the other week when they did that. Whenever that person gave that word at church, bless them. That was fantastic. That, you know, someone cleaned up my coffee spill. Isn't that amazing? As opposed to, they knocked it out of my hand. They apologized. That person helped me out. Aren't they amazing? Gossip good if you must gossip at all. Speak well of people. Deal in truth. Don't gossip. Clear? Clear? Good. Last bit. Nehemiah 6, 10 to 19. Let's have a quick read of it. This is, this is a tricky one. I have to be honest. Um, 10 to 19. Uh, In fact, we'll start reading at uh, verse 15, actually, if that's okay. So the wall was completed. Thank you, Andy. (laughs) Let's try that again, shall we, pantomime audience? (laughs) So the wall was completed. (laughs) On the 25th day of Elul, in 52 days, 52 days. We want this builder's number. When all our enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence because they realized that this work had been done with the help of God. Also in those days, the nobles of Judah were sending many letters to Tobiah, and replies from Tobiah kept coming in. For many in Judah were under oath to him, since he was a son in law to Shechaniah, son of Arah. And his son, Jehohanahanahanahanahanahanahanahanahanahan, <laughs> had married the daughter of Meshulam, son of Berechiah. Moreover, they kept reporting back to me his good deeds and then telling him what I said. And Tobiah sent letters to intimidate me. Division divided loyalties. And the strange oxymoron. Friendly fire. We know that phrase, don't we? Where people on our, on our own side in a military conflict end up shooting people on their side. And people get hurt. These subtle and not so subtle attacks can often be the worst and the most hurtful. When a friend stabs you in the back. When someone who's close to you turns on you and bites you. When you feel that someone else is just not on your side whenever they've been involved in the same project with you. There's one last gasp attempt to disrupt the building and discredit Nehemiah. That's happened when when one of his friends was held up in a a house. You read it in chapter five, sorry, at the end of, yeah, earlier. And uh, it says, let's go into the temple, Nehemiah. Let's hide away from our enemies. And Nehemiah says, no, I'm not gonna be guilty of desecrating the temple. I'm not gonna run away like a coward. And he knew that this person, who was his friend, had been set up. He was being set up by his friend. And then afterwards, when the wall is finished, and it seems like everybody around all the enemies have lost heart, he gets his close friends who've been involved in the building project. If you read some of those names, they built parts of the wall. And yet they're still in contact with Tobiah, who wanted to stop the building of the wall. It should be a happy ever after, shouldn't it? The wall's done. All the enemies are kind of drifting away, but Tobiah is still there. Tobiah, at the end of his name tells you he had some connection with the Jews. The fact that he was married into them as well, but he was an Ammonite. He was not Jewish. He was not part of the nation of God. He was connected to the people through family. And apparently, these family people are unaware of Tobiah's involvement in the plots. And notice that Nehemiah doesn't tell them about that. He still doesn't, um, he, he, he doesn't retaliate to slag off Tobiah. They sing his praises to Nehemiah about his good deeds. He's a good guy. Why don't we include him? He's a good one. Why don't we just you know, change the vision so he so can be included as well? Because that's nice, isn't it? And that's what we're meant to be. We're meant to be nice people doing nice things, aren't we? Compromise, inclusion, it sounds good, doesn't it? What they don't realize is that this guy, Tobiah, is still sending intimidating letters to Nehemiah. What they don't realize is that he continues to intimidate for the whole 12 years that Nehemiah is in governorship. He goes back, Nehemiah goes back to Susa, to the Persian king, to report back everything, and during that time... Tobiah makes his move. You read about it in chapter 12 and 13 where Eliashib, the high priest, invites Tobiah in and gives him, not just any old place, he gives him big rooms in the temple precinct to settle down and move his stuff into. Nehemiah hears this and goes, no, chuck him out, clean the place, he's desecrated the temple. But what the guy was doing was nice. He was including Tobiah. All those other people were saying he's a really good guy. The difficulty is sometimes what's good is not what's God. It's not that what God does and plans is not good. It is the pure good. But sometimes the nice stuff that we do is not in keeping with God's plan. All these Different things, the distraction, sorry, unity, the distraction, and the division. They're all aimed at diluting and compromising the plans of God. And some seemed good. Make up with your enemies, compromise with them, seek your safety over others, include good people. Come on, let's invite everybody to the party. That's what we need to do. Or maybe for us, water down the gospel challenge so it's more palatable, more popular. Change the vision and the mission to make it more inclusive of all people regardless of the effect that our inclusion will do. Being destructive from what God wants us to do is just to what is just good and nice. Let me tell you, the enemy delights in that. He delights in us doing good sometimes if it's not what God wants us to do. I hope I'm making that clear because it can be a bit confusing. The enemy will be fine with that. Because sometimes, not all villains wear black cloaks and have a theme tune that goes da-da-da. Sometimes the villains wear a friendly face. Sometimes the villains are you, and sometimes it's me. We can be used by the enemy to hamper God's progress. I know for a fact there have been times I've done that. So I'm gonna say, just take care, watch out. Watch out for what? Well, watch out, if this'll work, watch out that you're not being used, even if it's unaware. Watch out that you are not involved in disunity, in the devaluing of people, in the segregating of people, that I'm better than another person. Don't be involved in that. Don't be involved in the abusing of other people. Don't be involved in rumors and gossip mongering. Don't be involved in it. Watch out. And don't settle for good if it's not God. Instead, let's know and remain faithful to God's vision for what he's called us to. That's what Nehemiah did. And let God take care of the rest. Let's leave self-preservation and self-advancement to God. We are kingdom building, not empire building. And by prayer and time with God, let's recognize his voice and his promptings and his nudgings enough to be able to discern what's really going on with something. And maybe, maybe we can avoid the trap of being used by the enemy in internal opposition. Amen? band's going to come up and we're going to pray and worship together. Let's pray together.